Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. taconnections.com. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Start your engines. It's another busy week in aviation. Thanks for downloading Airlines Confidential and going along for the ride with us. I'm Chris Chimes, and I'm joined as always by Ben Baldanza. Hello, Chris, and hello to all of our listeners. We're going to cover some news as always, and then Nancy Hocking from JetBlue is going to talk to us about some innovative ways the airline is tackling the pilot shortage. First up, a group of 10 pilots from Southwest JetBlue and American have sued the CDC about the federal mask mandate, claiming the requirement causes claustrophobia and that it's, quote, an illegal and unconstitutional exercise of executive authority, end quote. This got a lot of media attention, Ben, and we're adding to it by talking about it. But at the risk of these 10 pilots listening and maybe agreeing or disagreeing with what we have to say, do you want to comment? Well, I do want to comment. I was kind of surprised of this because it seems so late in the process. (laughs) Like masks have been mandated for, I think, over a year now or maybe close to a year. I'm losing time sort of in this pandemic thing. And the last extension was for 30 days when the government specifically said, we're going to use this time to figure out the details of what we're going to do. All the momentum suggests that within a couple of weeks, the mandate's going to be gone. That doesn't mean it's going to be gone. Right. But that's where sort of the momentum seems to be leading. So what surprised me is why now say this? If it's really claustrophobic and if it's making flights less safe, I thought we would have heard this within the first 30 days of the mass mandate. My sense is that these pilots don't like wearing the masks, don't want the masks, understand that masks have caused more issues behind the cockpit door in terms of flight disruption and such. And they found an attorney who thought that they could craft an argument like others in other industries have done about the illegality of of this mass mandate. There may or may not be legal arguments that the mask mandate is unconstitutional or exceeds executive authority. I'm not an attorney on that. Maybe we can get Mark Dombroff back on the program to talk about that. <laughs> but my sense is I think this is interesting, certainly because they're pilots. The world will take this more seriously. Nobody wants any pilot saying we think we're being made less safe. I saw two of these pilots on TV I'm not sure which two they were, which airlines they worked for. And one of them sort of made an odd argument that pilots go through their own medical procedures and the FARs 
outline specific medical requirements for the pilots. So by having a mask mandate on that, they use the term that it almost conflicts and has conflicting government regulations. One is the FARs, one is the mandate. I thought that was an odd argument and somewhat a spurious argument, to be honest. But again, I'm not an attorney, so maybe a a lawyer would say, no, that's a very good argument. So my sense, Chris, is that this is interesting because it's pilots. Nobody wants pilots to feel unsafe or uncomfortable in the cockpit. People are going to care about this. But it seems like a lot of show almost as the train's about to leave the station in terms of the mass mandate going away. I think odd is the operative word. I think it's odd that it got so much media attention. And that's one of the reasons why I teed it up. It's like, why is the media covering this so heavily? It's 10 pilots. The, The unions are kind of distancing themselves from this. I don't think they really want this out there right now. I think it's odd they're suing the CDC because this isn't a CDC mandate on aviation. It's the TSA. It's just odd all the way around. So it's like, like you said, why, why is this an issue now when mass mandates have been in place for well over a year? But hopefully the situation's improving rapidly, although everyone's starting to watch this new variant out of Europe. And hopefully the mask mandate will turn into some type of recommendation pretty soon on airplanes. But it was just, like you said, very odd. And then let's spend a little time south of the U.S. It looks like the Caribbean has its first ultra-low-cost carrier, Aerojet, had its first flight on March 14th. It has one aircraft that I can count, with an initial plan to fly from its home base in the Dominican Republic to Colombia, Jamaica, and Costa Rica, among other destinations. So, Ben, you're an expert in this field of ULCCs. What's it going to take for them to succeed in this region? Well, this is an interesting play, I think. And it's got some good people behind it. One of the people behind this is Mike Powell, who was the CFO at Wizz Air, and then helped launch and found Fly Bondi down in Argentina. Another is Victor Pacheco, who's been in the industry for a while. So it's not sort of people who don't know what they're doing. That helps a lot, I think, to help ensure this is going to succeed. The second thing is that the Dominican Republic is reasonably well positioned geographically to carry traffic, certainly from the east coast of the U.S., not only to the Dominican Republic, but down into South America somewhat. It maybe isn't as convenient for Central America. If you think about them putting in place a connecting hub that may compete with Miami or Panama, or something like that. They've talked about initially serving the broad Dominican diaspora, and that certainly is broad. That gives them the ability to fly to a number of cities in the Caribbean and the U.S. and really target sort of Dominicans who live in lots of places. And if that's where they're focused initially, they probably will have some success. The team doing this understands the ULCC model, whether they'll have a labor advantage to the U.S., labor cost advantage, I mean, to the U.S. carriers is interesting, and whether that would make them lower cost, say, than Spirit or JetBlue or Frontier, all of whom serve 
markets in that region. And so I think they have a reasonable chance. I mean, no startup airline, you'd say, has a 100% chance to be successful. Even when we talked about, you know, Avello and Breeze in the U.S., we've talked about challenges they have, even though they have, you know, smart founders as well. So I think that because of the geography, because of their focus on the Dominican traveler and the people who sort of understand the ULCC space well, I think they have a better than average chance of being successful. Nothing's easy in this business, though, and there will be a lot of capital in the business who doesn't want them to be successful. So whether they have enough cash and enough wherewithal to get through the first few years and make it work, we're going to have to see. Yeah, I mean, they've got an advantage other ULCC startups don't have, which is they're not competing with the car, right? So the only way to get around is by air for the most part. But then I, you look at other markets like you know, the Hawaiian Islands, for an example, there's only so much of a market that can be served by ULCCs or any carriers. So what's the volume going to be with the big carriers kind of looming around them, not wanting to give up any market share? Just a reminder that TA Connections partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. They monitor and track room utilization to ensure that you get the most out of the rooms you buy and you only pay for what you consume, which means enhanced operations and true savings for your organization. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet car company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. And Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. So Ben, staying south of the U.S. border, and I think our friends at Seabury played a role in all this, Mexican carrier Aeromexico has emerged from Chapter 11 reorganization. What's the buzz about how they will be in a better position to compete in the changing landscape of Mexican and Latin American aviation from your perspective? You know, it's great for Aeromexico that they have emerged from Chapter 11. As we know in this industry, though, Chapter 11 doesn't ensure success. We've had airlines fail after emergence. We've had airlines go into a second bankruptcy that sometimes is called Chapter 22 because of that. So I'm not really sure what Aeromexico got done in their Chapter 11. I'm sure they reorganized a lot of their debt, maybe expunged a lot of that debt. I'm sure their balance sheet is in much stronger shape as a result of what they did. But as they emerge as a healthier, maybe stronger carrier, that doesn't change the fact that they're operating in a very competitive space with a very successful and lower cost and larger carrier Volaris and a number of airlines around them that maybe are even more efficient than they are post-Chapter 11. So I think it's good for them that they've emerged. That gives some confidence and 
stability to their employees, of course, because being in Chapter 11 can be a scary thing and can be an uncertain thing. So it's great that they got through that process. But now what that does is it doesn't guarantee their success. It guarantees they have the right to go and compete in a very tough space. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, the biggest pivot as you exit chapter 11 is you, you're kind of in a in a protected space somewhat, although, you know, you still have the chance of liquidation while you're in a court of monitored uh, restructuring. But once you're out, everything's out and exposed and you got to go fast and you got to be smart. And that methodical nature sometimes of a reorganization and the cadence of court hearings and negotiations, all that falls falls away and you got to go fast and, and be very competitive. And like you said, it's a really competitive market in Mexico. Well, we got more Airlines Confidential coming up. We'll be right back with Nancy Hawking from JetBlue. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and we're very happy to welcome Nancy Hocking to the show. Nancy works at JetBlue and runs a very innovative program training people who want to become pilots, and we're very excited to talk to her. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you so much for having me today. So, Nancy, we always start these conversations by having our guests give a little self-introduction. Talk about your current role, but your history in the aviation business and how you got to what you're doing today. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. My current position is Director of Gateway Programs at JetBlue. I've been at JetBlue now four and a half years, but I'm actually no stranger to these programs. When our first one started in 2008 with our partner Cape Air, I actually was working at Cape Air. As far as where I started, if you go back about 20 plus years, I actually was a teacher and learn to fly on a dare. And when I had my first flying lesson, I knew I had gotten bit by the bug and that was basically the beginning of, well, we'll call it the beginning of the beginning. And that is when I started to explore this great career in aviation. One thing I've always considered myself is an aviation educator. So in my various positions along the way, I've done training, I have done pilot recruitment, and in this current role, it's great because I can really combine everything to help the next generation who wants to find themselves in the flight deck. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role and to be able to support that initiative. Nancy, that's fantastic to have joined the industry on a dare. Many of us have been dared not to come into this industry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, tell us, what encouraged JetBlue to start this program in the first place? So it's really interesting, Ben, when we look back at a, the 2008 timeframe, and we all sort of know that as the sort of lost decade, it's, it's known as in, in the industry. And there wasn't a lot of hiring going on. We all were starting to look at what this pilot supply challenge thing was going to be uh, moving forward and, and in the future. But at the time... What JetBlue was looking for and in the partnership with Cape Air was really how to provide a young student, and this first program was our university program, 
how to provide a young student with a prescribed pathway to help them know what the end goal was. So that was the original initiative. How can we provide this pathway, give the students a little peace of mind, give their parents a little peace of mind to say, hey, if you follow this prescription, you know, this, this very specific set of uh, framework pieces, you will find yourself at a major airline. So when we look back at the first two pilots that joined the program, they were from University of North Dakota and Embry-Riddle, they really took a chance. And they are now both still at JetBlue as are almost every single one of our gateway pilots. And we were able to provide for them this prescribed pathway. Now, as we look at the years past that, 2010, 12, 14, going forward, we started to look at this in a bigger way to be able to not just provide a pathway, but to provide a whole career, really provide the access, the engagement, the support, the mentorship to make this career available to anybody who showed the aptitude and the desire to join. So we keep talking about, quote, the program. Tell us what the program is. You refer to it as gateway, but who can join? What are they guaranteed? What do they have to do to qualify? Kind of walk us through the the, the basic elements of the program. Absolutely. So we call them our gateways. And you'll hear me see, say gateways or gateway programs a lot. It's actually a suite of right now seven programs. Five of them are to become pilots and two of them are to become maintenance technicians. Uh, of those programs, there's a different path really for just about anyone. One thing we always say is that there isn't a single path to become a pilot or a technician, but there's a right path for everyone. So we have different gateways with different names. Our first, as I mentioned, Gateway University, which is a partnership with 11 schools that are accredited by the Aviation Accreditation Board International, also known as ABBI, and airline partners where students can graduate from their schools, become flight instructors, go fly at one of our partners or one of our time building options, um, and then come to JetBlue. We also have our Gateway Select program, which is our ab initio, started in 2016, the first one that airlines have done. And that one trains pilots really from the beginning with no experience to become JetBlue pilots. Then we have a group of internal programs for our crew members. And at JetBlue, we call all our employees crew members. And these are opportunities for crew members who maybe are working in in-flight or working in tech ops or working in airports who wanna become pilots or technicians. And it gives them a framework to join either one of our partner schools or to have a little bit more of a flexible opportunity to go out and train Again, follow a prescribed path, build time with one of our partners, and then join us at JetBlue. So the beauty with our programs is that when selected, all participants actually earn a conditional job offer right at the outset, which means no more interviews or any other element to get them to JetBlue except to just follow the prescribed path. And along the way, not only do they get that path and that guidance, but they get support from the Gateways team and they also get a JetBlue mentor to help them every step of the way. So really it's an opportunity to get this, this scaffolding, this framework with that known job at the end to be able to reach their goals. Nancy, I have a quick follow-up on that before we move on to another issue, which is if you're a JetBlue crew member 
and you have, you know, a start date and maybe a seniority date based on the role you come from. While you're in the gateway program, do you continue to accrue that? And when you become a pilot or technician, do you join with that updated or you start from zero at that point? That's a great question. Thank you for asking that. So I get that a lot from crew members. And when somebody is admitted into our gateways, they have the opportunity first to go on a leave of absence from their current position for one year. And we do that to be able to provide a little bit of a safety net, give them a feeling of of support just in case something doesn't go well for them and they want to return back to their position. So that's the first piece to give them that a little bit more of that encouragement and um, support to do that. Now, when we start talking about seniority and longevity, those are, are important terms, as I know you both know. Seniority and longevity certainly are different. Longevity, of course, is when you were hired, and seniority is that all-important number that pilots get when they join uh, the pilot group of as official first officers. So what I always tell our crew members is, hey, listen, you're going to join this program. You will eventually have to separate officially from JetBlue to go out and build your flight time and your experience and get all those things that you need to come back. You will come back and you will join the pilot seniority list. And when that happens, you are under the same combined bargaining agreement that all the other JetBlue pilots are. So even if you're concerned about things like vacation, the 401k, for example, all of those things are going to be governed by your new pilot contract anyway, and that's the way it is for everybody else. So they understand that going in, and to be honest with you, when they come back, they realize that that actually is a very, very good deal for them. So the other pieces that maybe were a concern when they left are no longer a concern. So are you concerned at all, Nancy, that with all kinds of talks of pilot shortages and things like that, that you'll train people through this program, but then they won't go and work for JetBlue, they'll go work for another airline? That's a great question. And I'm smiling here, Ben, because I think about the pilots that have come through our gateways, and we have triple digit pilots at JetBlue that have come all the way through, and we have had almost no attrition from the pilots that have joined us. They come here and they stay because they love it. And furthermore, they are the ones who become the mentors and the recruiters and the supporters for the next generation. There is so much support that happens for our gateways that the pilots that come to us, it doesn't even occur to them to do anything else. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story. When we had a recent gateway select class start, we started talking to them about the blue juice. And for us, that's sort of the cultural jet blue stuff. That, that makes people really love our company. And I had been joking about the blue juice, the blue juice. And this person, uh, one of the students about three days in raised his hand and said, well, Nancy, I have a question for you. And I said, okay. And he said, you keep talking about this blue juice, but we haven't had any yet. Are we going to get some blue juice? <laughs> and I, I looked at him and I smiled and I said, you have had so much and you don't even know it yet. And it's true is that they get this blue juice, they get this support from our team, they get the support from JetBlue leaders. We always have visitors from our crew leaders that, uh, that wanna come and meet the students and engage with them and just know them from the beginning. That at the, at the end of all of this, 
it wouldn't even occur to anybody really to go anywhere else. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why this program is so, so uh, successful is because of that connection that we make. A follow-up to that, Nancy. Uh, talk to us a bit about the volume of students in this program and how did COVID impact the level of interest? That's a great question. So when we started the programs, we were, I'd like to describe it, quietly successful. Obviously, in any program, when you start, you want to start small to make sure that it works. And as each program has taken hold and grown, our numbers have increased a lot. So we have several hundred people that are involved in one or other of the programs. And what's interesting with the COVID piece is that, to be honest, it actually, I think, made people more interested. We had so many people inquiring about our programs, wanting to become pilots, wanting to take this career. And in fact, I have heard stories of people who actually found that COVID gave them the opportunity and the time to go out and actually start flying, that it, it didn't actually hinder them. So now that we're emerging, now that there's so much growth, there's so much demand, I think so many people are seeing this as an incredible opportunity and a really viable career option. So we actually just launched our newest program. It's called Gateway Family, and it's for family members of our crew members. So if you are a spouse, sibling, child, stepchild, or parent, you are eligible to apply for this gateway. And we have had so much response to it. And here we are emerging from COVID and I can't wait to have each of these people interviewed, selected, and to come on board with us and make their way to join the JetBlue family with their actual family members. So I think COVID made everybody sort of do a, you know, a review of what they wanted, what they needed, and a lot of people are finding that this is the right career for them. We'll have more with Nancy Hawking in a moment. This week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the aircraft engine, helicopter engine, and auxiliary power unit space. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're speaking with Nancy Hawking of JetBlue Gateway Programs. Nancy, you mentioned earlier that your program has pathways to train pilots and technicians. Can you talk about the relative time frames of each of those programs once someone joins? Absolutely, Ben. And it really depends on which program it is. But the general length ends up being anywhere from about three and a half to five years, depending on where you start. Some of the programs are very, very prescriptive. So, for example, we have a program for crew members called Gateway Direct, where they go to one of our partner training schools. It's actually a college. It's called Aviator College in Fort Pierce, Florida, where they go and get an associate degree and all of their certificates and ratings. They work as a flight instructor, and then they join our partner Cape Air for a certain amount of time to upgrade to captain and then fly as a captain before returning to JetBlue. So that's a, I would say, three and a half, four-year program. 
Same goes for our Gateway Select program, which is our ab initio program for external applicants, and that's out in Arizona with our partner CAE. And that entails a little over a year of training, both out in Arizona and also at JetBlue University, our training center, and then an additional two years working as a flight instructor. So again, about three and a half years. I would say that the longer programs are our Gateway University program, where roughly juniors or so will apply and and be accepted, and they need to graduate, they will flight instruct at their own school, and then go out and fly at one of our partners. So that can be a little bit longer, four or five years, depending on where it is. And then our Gateway Flex program for crew members as well. Uh, um, offers the most in the way of flexibility in terms of training location, time building, uh, and the like. So that one, we give a a time limit of five years for crew members to take their job offer, go out, get their certificates, ratings, and build their experience, and then come back to JetBlue. As far as the tech side goes, I think that's important to note as well. That program is a little bit shorter, mainly because getting an A&P certificate is a little bit shorter of, of a training program. And for those, they are roughly in the, the two to three year period. And that includes the A&P training, uh, working through our apprentice program with our maintenance team, and then becoming maintenance technicians. Nancy, you mentioned this flow through from Cape Air to JetBlue. Has this program stabilized the Cape Air pilot pipeline? So I think with Cape Air and with any of our partners, having a little bit of predictability is definitely helpful to them. And I also think that it's a great draw as well for their potential applicants. So I think across the board, it is helpful, if if nothing else, to be able to predict what your numbers are looking like and what they will look like going forward. And we've had such an amazing partnership with Cape Air. In fact, for our Gateway Direct program for crew members at JetBlue, Cape Air crew members or their employees are also eligible to apply and join as well. So it's a a partnership that keeps on growing, and I think it's beneficial for both of us. How is this program supporting the JetBlue uh, DEI initiatives and priorities? So it's been really fun with these programs as we start to look at our applicant pool. And the thing for me that is my goal is to really make this career as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. There are so many barriers to becoming a pilot, number one being financial. And I think that if we can break down some of these barriers, we're going to find that our applicant pool, that our selected candidates, that our our pilot population overall is much more diverse. So we've been successful with that. We have partnered with lenders to be able to provide loan products with favorable rates that are accessible to a lot of people. You don't have to have that perfect credit. You don't have to have that cosigner to be able to get those loans. We've also taken away some of the fears, especially for our crew members, by providing that leave of absence in that first year. And we even continue to provide flight benefits during that first year so that they don't feel so far away from family or friends or or that support network. So when we remove all those barriers, it's amazing to see who then is able to approach this career. So I can tell you that 
since we put some of these programs in place from a uh, diversity standpoint, for example, our most recent group of selected candidates for Gateway Direct is more than 80% from underrepresented groups. So that includes women as well. So really just so many opportunities to get these amazing candidates in and to really diversify our pilot population. Nancy, this program sounds so successful. Do you expect that you'll grow it over the next few years, either by having more classes or maybe opening it up to even more career options? I think all of the above, Ben. When I look at the offerings now, I always want to get more people into each program. And as we have that proof in the pudding, as they say, of success, I think that there's more opportunity to expand our current program offerings. I also think, too, that there's opportunities to add more programs. Part of what I like to do is talk with our candidates, find out where they came from, find out what their challenges are, find out what it is that maybe had stopped them before and and what actually helped them to be able to join in the end and take all that information and build our programs accordingly to be able to support more people. So if that means adding new programs, then I say absolutely. And of course, we just added our Gateway family, which is going to be a huge add We have so many applicants, as I said before, I can't wait to meet all these people and to get them into into our pipeline to JetBlue. As far as other types of job opportunities, I say yes. I think that providing the framework, providing the mentorship, the guidance, the engagement, and really that prescribed path, taking away all those those barriers, I think it's a, a great way to help somebody just starting out to get to whatever their dream job is. And and who knows what that is, but I think that the sky's the limit in that area. So Nancy, as we wrap up, we certainly have listeners who want to get in the airline business. And then we also have others who are mentoring people trying to help them get into the business. If people are interested, what should they do to learn more about Gateway? Well, first of all, to all the mentors out there, I want to say thank you. It's amazing the work that mentors do to support the next generation. There really is not a lot of readily available information to those who want to become pilots. And I think to be able to provide that guidance is incredible. So mentors, thank you for that. As far as our gateways go, I would love to invite your listeners to join us at our new gateways website, jetbluegateways.com. In fact, if you want to hear some great stories about our Gateway participants, please click on the link at the top of the landing page that says Discover Gateways. You can watch a great video that highlights some of the successes in our programs. So JetBlueGateways.com, or you can send an email to JetBlueGateways at JetBlue.com, and somebody from our team will get back in touch with you. But we really encourage anyone interested, come learn some more about us and consider joining us at JetBlue. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for spending time with us, telling us about this exciting program. We certainly hope that some of our listeners decide to join the airline business through this program. And thank you for all you've done here. Thank you both so much for having me today. Thanks, Nancy. We'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a moment. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more.
Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and thanks again to Nancy Hawking from JetBlue for a great discussion. Now it's time for listener questions. Please email your questions at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, our first question is from another Ben, Ben Goldstein from Aviation Week. I love how we've got other media channeling their questions via the podcast now. And I note that a listener from St. Louis, Ryan, sent in a similar question. Hey, Ben, love the show. I'm wondering if you can explain why large U.S. airlines mostly do not hedge fuel and maybe talk a bit about the pros and cons of hedging. I think it's an interesting topic, but it's hard to come across good analysis about the benefits and drawbacks of fuel hedging. Well, thank you, Ben. This is a good question. Here's the way I think about it and why I think most large U.S. airlines are not hedging fuel today. Hedging fuel, which basically means spending some money or putting some capital at risk, to protect a fuel price, meaning be able to buy at a specific price, which may be higher or lower than the price you would otherwise pay at the time you buy. And it can be used to preserve liquidity. If you're an airline that is at risk of running out of cash, hedging can be a way to help sure that a high fuel price isn't the thing that pushes you out of business. It can also help to stabilize earnings potential by being able to more confidently predict your fuel price, given that you've protected it or hedged it at a certain rate. The challenge with this, though, is that it puts airlines in a business that has nothing to do with the airline business. It gets into commodity speculation. And if you're good at commodity speculation, you might equally ask, well, why aren't airlines speculating on gold or corn or other commodities or something? Maybe gold is not a commodity, right? But other commodities versus just oil because they use it. I think the real issue here is that as airlines have gotten more dynamic about their capital deployment and smarter and smarter about their revenue management, they've recognized that the risk of higher fuel isn't a multi-year risk as much as it is a maybe 90-day risk. Most flyers, not all, but most customers buy their tickets within 90 days. So if someone buys a ticket today for a month and a half from now, and I'm an airline that sold that ticket, I am at risk that if my fuel price goes up between now and then, I'm going to have a higher cost to service that ticket than I thought when I sold the ticket. But outside of 90 days, airlines can adjust their capacity They can certainly adjust fares. Airlines have gotten better about recovering higher fuel prices in the fare. So outside of 90 days, the ability to change how many seats they're offering and change their price is a much better way to address 
the higher energy price for a period of time and doesn't give up any of the benefit of lower fuel prices were that to happen. So I think what's happened is that as the industry balance sheets have improved, and that means up until COVID, of course, airlines recognize that the risk they were protecting from hedging can be managed in a less expensive way just by closer and tighter management of the business. And the airlines that do hedge and the airlines that are still hedging are more and more hedging only out maybe 60 or 90 days to protect the tickets that have already been sold. I think that's the best way to think about it, Ben. Well, thank you, Professor Baldanza. Uh, Ben and Ryan, we have your emails, so we'll be sending you a quiz that we want back by the end of the week. So, uh, No, I think that summed it up fabulously. It's a complicated issue. And like you said, you know, at some level, do they get into hedging other commodities if, if that's what they're in the business of doing is hedging on commodities? So, and, and just the business has changed, like you said, so dramatically over the past couple of decades when, you know, I recall back in the 80s and 90s when Southwest was seen as the darling and the smart airline for all they were doing on fuel hedges. And then Mabin from the DFW area sent us this question. Hey, Ben and Chris, I'm an avid listener to your show and thoroughly enjoy your takes on the various topics affecting the airline industry. I had a question related to Southwest pricing on their nonstops versus connecting itineraries out of Love Field. I've quite often noticed that Southwest typically prices their nonstop flights lower than their connecting itineraries, which is usually the opposite for the legacy carriers like AA and United and Delta. Could either of you elaborate why Southwest chooses to discount a nonstop flight? Thanks for your response. Mobin, this is a great question. And when I read this question, I went on the Southwest site and priced all kinds of flights out of love. And you're right. There are many of times that Southwest prices their nonstop lower than their connecting itineraries. So I started looking at the detail of what connecting itineraries were higher priced than the nonstops and such. And I think what they're doing is they are trying to buy us away from the connection when they can take you at a lower cost for themselves on the nonstop and use the two connecting flights for flights that have their own local traffic. So let me give an example. If Southwest flies from Love to Midway and they also fly from Love to Kansas City and Kansas City to Midway, So what you're saying, in which I verified, there are times when the nonstop from Love Field to Midway is priced at a lower price than when they fly Love Field to Kansas City to Midway. And I think what they're saying is, if you're going to Chicago, we want to get you there in the lowest cost way for us, which is the nonstop flight. If you're just going to Kansas City, we're going to give you a really you know, attractive fare to fly that route. And if you live in Kansas City and are going to Chicago, we'll give you an attractive fare on that route. 
And also, since they connect in a lot of places, they probably have some flights that connect in Kansas City that are also going to Chicago. And they have some flights that come into Love that are also connecting on to Kansas City. So they can fill those two flights. They don't want to burden those two flights with people going to Chicago when they have the nonstop flight there. And to me, I think that's what they're doing. And that makes good economic sense, too. My guess is if you or I spent a lot of time on their site, we could find some places where this isn't true also, meaning where they do offer a discount on the connection versus the nonstop. But I think in the cases that I look specifically out of love, where they don't have quite as many flights as they would like to have, and they have 18 gates, which is a lot, but they're still somewhat flight constrained out of love. My guess is they're trying to protect the nonstop to be able to carry the truly nonstop traffic that way and use the connections to carry as much local traffic as they can in and out of Dallas and in and out of the places they're going to. I hope that makes some sense. Chris, was that just confusing? No, I think it makes perfect sense. Like you said, it costs them a lot more to carry a connecting passenger. And then I think the only thing I would add to that is, you know, historically, Southwest has never sold on sites like Expedia or Travelocity where they can be price compared. And this is exactly why, because they don't want to be seen as the higher priced option in the market on a side-by-side kind of comparison. So um, by by selling only on Southwest.com, they can do whatever they want as far as pricing and not have to react to marketplace pricing as much. That's a great add to that. Well, Chris, this week's finer wine is from Charles in Orange County, California. Speaking about Southwest again, I've been a loyal Southwest Rapid Rewards member since 2000. Due to COVID and my company's policy, I was unable to travel for the past two years. Earlier in February this year, I was able to take my first business trip again. I was shocked that my A-list status was dropped due to inactivity and without any warning or communication. I contacted Southwest and lodged a complaint. The response was that there was inactivity and reminded me of the requirements to gain the A-list status. This is in stark contrast to the spirit of the customer-centric airline that I have enjoyed over the years. What do you think, Chris? So I have to admit... I'm not as familiar with Southwest Frequent Flyer Program as some of the others, even though I live five miles from Love Field. Um, so I went online, did a little bit of research, and checked some chat boards to make sure I understood things appropriately. So, Charles, this is a wine. I'll start off by saying that. It's a wine. Uh, Southwest had reduced the qualification requirements to maintain A-list status, but they did not flat out extend the benefits like some of the other um, major carriers did into 2022. Um, I, I realize if you're an A-list flyer, there's still some benefit, but you don't have the benefit of other programs with upgrades and all the other perks that come with being a platinum on Delta or American or whatever else. But still, if you're an A-list status flyer in Southwest, you want to keep it. What they did do was lower the qualification to 15 segments and then or 15 credits, I think they call it. And then they spotted everybody 10 credits. So you only had to fly five segments to maintain your A-list status. So 
frankly, there was a lot of chatter on some of the boards I checked where they thought this was a great offer because they could uh, earn their status very quickly and easily. So it might have been you missed some communication. You might have opted out of receiving updates. Um, but if you hadn't checked in with Southwest at all for any reason for two years with regard to your account or anything else, this is why probably you got tagged with the downgrade because um, there were a lot more Southwest customers who were paying attention and taking advantage of their offer. So I'm sorry it's a whine, but hopefully you're going to be flying a lot in 2022 to earn that status back. Chris, I have to agree with you on this. I think what Southwest did, rather than just say, I'm going to hold your status no matter what you do, made it, frankly, quite easy to keep the status. Say, I'll pay two-thirds of it for you, right? If you live in Love Field, you could probably, for a very low price over the last two years, have flown down to Houston for lunch or something, right? And just kept your A-list status if that's what you wanted to do. So I think that was uh, pretty good of what Southwest did, and I'm sorry that Charles, that you didn't sort of get that option available to you or didn't realize you had that option. Well, as we wrap up the show this week, um, my shout out this week is going to be a little arcane, but it goes to the Airline Reporting Corp, or ARC. And even though ARC doesn't really do anything except report things, their report was terrific. They released data showing that travel agency ticket sales totaled $5.4 billion in February 22, which is a 253% year-over-year increase and the highest number since February 2020, which we all remember was the last month before COVID. So I think that's just fantastic. And I expect that as we go through 2022, we're going to get more and more of these best since 2019 kind of uh, numbers in all kinds of different ways. But the fact that ARC, which tracks this travel agency sales, has reported sort of the best number since pre-COVID is just fantastic, says great things for the industry. And it really, the shout out goes to all the people who travel. But since ARC reported it, I'll give the shout out to them. And Ben, my shout out goes to the Massachusetts State Police officers who came to the rescue of passengers on JetBlue Flight 676 when it arrived late, about 12.15 a.m. at Worcester Airport last week. The third-party ground handling crew had all gone home, decided they didn't want to wait around for the aircraft, I guess. I'm not quite sure. So the police had to track down the JetBlue station manager who came to the airport and helped to plane the passengers. I know good help is hard to find right now, but it sounds like JetBlue needs to look a little harder in Worcester. Maybe we should have talked to Nancy about uh, a gateway project for Worcester Airport Services. <laughs> With that, thanks to everyone. Have a great week. We'll see you next week on Airlines Confidential. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.